This will be the last uh, study on the Trinity that we're going to do. Um, and we'll do a quick recap just to put together all the parts and pieces, and then we'll get into today's study. But so far, we've discussed what the Trinity is, who the Trinity is, what the Trinity is not. We looked at some heresies that have come throughout history and why it's an important doctrine for the church and for us as individual believers. And the Trinity is not just a word that we throw out there. It is God's nature. And we're going to talk about today why that is important to understand. You will see why it's an important part of understanding our redemption. So what is the Trinity? It's a word used to describe the nature of God, as is found in the biblical text, right? Who is the Trinity? How many gods are there? It's one. So there's only one God, triune God. We don't worship three gods. We don't worship many gods. We worship one God. There are no gods before him. There are no gods after him. And there cannot be any other gods. God is the Father, God. He's the Son, God. And he's the Holy Spirit, God. And they are distinctly three persons, right? And so we discussed what the Trinity is not by discussing some analogies, things that we look at, like is God like water, steam, and ice, or is God like the three parts of an egg? And we talked about, talked about why those are not good analogies. Remember, it's always best to use proof text if you can. If you can bring a text to somebody, like why there's only one God, or does Jesus ever say he's God? This is a common argument. If you ever uh, have an apology with a Muslim, Muslims will typically say, well, Jesus never said he was God. It's not in the Bible. And you can say, well, yes, absolutely it is. So just some proof texts to know. Um, use these proof texts to support God's nature, right? Not try to draw a picture that can't be drawn. So just let the Bible speak for itself. It does it quite well. We studied some of the heresies that are out there um, that have come throughout history, including Arianism. If you remember right, we talked about that one. And we talked about how Arianism was combated in 325 AD. And there was the council that was put together. Does anybody remember where? Nicaea. Right, And what's the creed we get out of that? The Nicene Creed, right? So we get this creed that helps show us what the Trinity looks like. But that, remember, that wasn't the first one. We actually read some even earlier scholars that had uh, written some documents from as late as the, or as early as the late second century. So we know that this um, Trinitarian view of God was not new. It wasn't something that was created. Um, it's funny because as I study and I look through things, one of the things that popped up as I was, you know how your computer will kind of, it'll get an idea of what you keep looking for and things will keep popping up in your feed. And um, a video of the Mormon president, Gordon Hinckley, who is a well-loved president of the LDS church, popped up. He was talking about the Trinity and he teaches the Mormon church that the Council of Nicaea came together because Constantine pulled them in there to try to make this Trinitarian thing out of the Bible, um, and which we know from our first study of history is just not true. That's not the reason it came together. Now, Constantine was, in fact, the Emperor of Rome at the time, but it was the bishops that wanted to come together as they were fighting against heresy at the time. Uh, Constantine was maybe just barely a new believer 
um, during this period. But we, we studied guys like Theophilus of Antioch and Tertullian in the late 2nd century and early 3rd century. So we know that the Trinity is historically an important part of the church and that it's biblical from our proof text, right? Um, and we got that Nicene Creed and we read that and we see how it paints the picture of what the Trinity looks like and what the church believes about its doctrine. And lastly, we discussed why the Trinity is important for us to believe, tying the Trinity to our belief as Christians and how it plays a role in the redemptive process. We're going to dig into that today a little bit. Our basic belief in God is tied directly to God's nature as a triune God. <clears throat> you can't say you believe in Jesus Christ, but don't believe in the Trinity. It's unbiblical to say, yes, I believe in Jesus. And then we say, are you a Trinitarian? And say, no. Well, then you don't believe in the same God that I believe in because Jesus is part of the triune God. If you believe you're saved, by the way, you are saved by a triune God. And as we dig in today, we're going to tie it to our salvation. And I think this kind of brings it together. We're going to answer this question how the Trinity plays a role in the redemptive process. Does each person of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and then the Holy Spirit, each play an individual role in your salvation? And we'll do this by using this text from Ephesians as the basis for the redemptive plan. And we're going to do a little bit of a hermeneutical study to show its consistency. Uh, and this is we're going to blame this on our friend John because... Uh, my initial goal for going over the Trinity because it had been popping up in my life over and over and over with, with talking to friends or people at work was to discuss who God was and give you some proof text. Like, this is the Trinity. This is why it's true. And John called me and said, it'd be really cool if we did a study on how the Trinity ties to the redemptive process. And I said, yeah, that's awesome. So let's do that. So I think after doing this study, you're going to see how this uh, flourishes into the fullness of the Trinity and how we are going to see how important it is for us as believers to know what the Trinity is and how each person of the Trinity is tied to our salvation. So turn with me to Ephesians 1. And we are going to do verses 3 through verses 14. Now we're going to read the whole bit and then we're going to break it into three parts. So Ephesians 1, and start with me in verse 3, and we're going to go through the end of verse 14. Paul wrote this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he graciously bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions, according to the riches of his grace, which he caused to abound to us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he proposed in him. For an administration of the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth in him. 
In him we also have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, to the end that we who first have hoped in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. All right, so we've read this now. Now we're going to break this into three big chunks, and you're going to see that Paul believed in the Trinity when he wrote this thing, okay? First, we're going to look at Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. You're going to see the Father. And then we're going to go to Ephesians 1, 7 through 12, and you're going to see the Son. And we're going to finish with Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. You're going to see the Holy Spirit sealing us in our faith when we are saved. The first passage we'll look at, Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. It's blessed be the Father, blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We learn from this verse that our spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ come from God the Father. Okay, they come from Him. Named specifically, Paul makes a very specific case here. They don't come from Christ. They don't come from the Holy Spirit. They come from the Father. That's where the blessings originate. It is the Father who chose us in the Son before the foundation of the world. Now us being holy and blameless before Jesus in love is an act of the Father. So in order for us to be holy, separated, different than, in Jesus Christ, the Father is the one who has to do the work. He predestined us to be adopted as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, which means he planned it before the world was ever created. He knew that you would be saved in him. He knew you'd be created. He knew you would fall. And he knew his son would come and pay the price for you. But it is God the Father who originated that plan. We can clearly see from this that our salvation in Christ from the Father and is for the Father's glory. This is why God made this plan. It is for his own glory. So as he does this work, he does it for his own name. And if you've been listening to the language from this, I know some of you might think that word predestination is a hard one to get your head on. This is one of the most debated things in the church, predestination. How do we... How do we juxtapose these two ideas of predestination and free will and get our heads around how we are responsible but he has planned everything what does predestination mean and this particular study is not intended into diving into how predestination works or what is called maybe even the ordo salutis or the order in which you are saved what happens first and as we go down the line, basically a fancy Latin way of saying it describes the order which God the Father has determined your outcome before time, then takes you from your sinful state to your righteous state. It's a, it's a study for another time, but it's important to recognize that it is the Father, since before the foundation of the world, that chose you in Him. So God the Father is the one who developed the plan. Peter, when he wrote in 1 Peter 1.3, tells us 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So even Peter would agree it is God the Father's plan. It's a consistent hermeneutic across the entire Bible. Even Deuteronomy, in the Old Testament, we see this, that it's the Father's plan as, he, as it pertains to Israel here, who through Israel he brings Jesus. Listen to this from Deuteronomy 7, 6. It says, For you are a holy people to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for his own treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. What we are seeing there is it is God, the Father who chose Israel, the people, to be his people. And through them, he brings in our redemptive plan. He brings in Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, we're saved according to his plan, which happens before the foundations of the earth. And for the application of our study today, what we're seeing is the person, God the Father, the head of the Trinity. Remember, he is the head of Christ. We see this from Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 11.3. It's how our salvation is determined. So without the Father, there's no plan for salvation. So he's the one who writes it all. The redemptive plan is the Father's plan. I love this verse from Psalm 106. In Psalm 106.8 it says, Yet he saved them for the sake of his name, that he might make his might known. Saving sinners glorifies the Father. He makes the plan and all the parts and pieces and the timeline and the people and everything that's involved, all of it put together glorifies our God. If you've ever read Isaiah, there's this cool cycle that happens with the nation of Israel. I studied Isaiah last year pretty in depth, and I, I started to see this amazing thing unfold where God has given the land to Israel. He has blessed them richly, and then Israel would fall away. And then God would judge Israel by allowing another nation to come in and, and mess them all up, and either destroy them or close to destroy them and take their riches. And then God would come back and he would fix it all and he would be their redeemer. But he would be their redeemer not just for their sake. He would be their redeemer so that they would know he was their redeemer. So he would, they would know that it's to his glory. But not just that, he goes even further and when he does it, he saves them and he would judge that other nation that he used to judge them and he'd say, I'm not just doing this for you and for me, I'm doing it so that they know who I am. So through his redemptive process, all will know who he is, not just the saved, but the unsaved as well. God is doing it so that everybody knows his name. We realize that God's plan to redeem is not just for our good, but for his glorification so that we realize how great and how mighty he is to save. This is how we know. So now we've made that case. We know that God the Father makes the plan. Where does the Son fit in? Where does Jesus Christ fit into the redemptive plan? So turn back to Ephesians 1. Go to verse 7. And in 7 through 12, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions according to the riches of his grace, which he caused to abound to us in all wisdom and insight, making known 
to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in him. This is Jesus Christ. If you remember back to last week's study, I mentioned one of the most important aspects of believing the Trinity is believing that Jesus Christ is the Savior, the second person of the Trinity. You can't believe Jesus saved you without believing the Trinity. We've already established that it's God's plan, and now we are seeing the, God, the Son take his role in the redemptive process. And this passage we just read shows clearly the plan for the redemption is carried out through his blood, through his shed blood. This is how the plan is carried out. Romans, that Paul wrote in chapter 3, verse 24, says we are justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is Christ Jesus. God, the Father makes the redemptive plan. The redemption is Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, 3 to 14 explains to us how we should give thanks to the Father for the redemptive work that he has done. It finishes with showing us that it's the, in the Son that we have redemption, that Jesus is the one who forgives our sins. If you go to verse 9 in our study today, so Ephesians 1, verse 9, it says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in him. The mystery is that sacrificial work of Jesus Christ as the redemptive plan. So Israel would have been wondering what was going to happen. Now remember, we've talked about this in the past. They thought some big king was going to come sit on David's throne and just make this peace for them and that they would be a safe nation full of riches from then on out. Their small thinking didn't allow them to realize that this amazing Messiah was going to come and save the world and not just sit on David's throne there in Israel, but actually go sit at the right hand of the Father in heaven. This plan that he had set out for us, this Messiah does so much more. That is the mystery of salvation that Paul is talking about here. It's revealed in the God-man Christ Jesus. And in Romans, in that verse, and if you go to Romans verse, uh, excuse me, if you go to Romans chapter 16 in verses 25 to 27, Paul wrote this, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel in the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, the mystery that is revealed is Christ Jesus. The 26th verse is very interesting. Listen to this. It says, but now manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all Gentiles leading to obedience of faith. It is Jesus Christ manifested as foretold by the Old Testament scriptures, by the Old Testament prophets, all according to God the Father's plan. God the Father speaking through all the prophets, giving all this information to Moses to write down in the Pentateuch, it all points to Jesus as the Redeemer, manifested as mankind. In the 27th verse from Romans 16, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory forever, amen. 
The obedience to faith in God the Father is through Jesus Christ. By the way, who gets the glory for the saving work? So we just finished talking about God the Father, who gets the glory for the plan for redemption. Now we're seeing Christ Jesus, as Paul writes here in Romans, getting the glory for the redemptive work. So if God gets the glory, but also Jesus Christ gets the glory, then who does the glory go to? Can't go to two separate people. It goes to God. So what we're seeing here is evidence of one God who's getting the glory for the redemption, even though it's clear that he's saying the glory goes to the Father. The glory goes to the Son. And it's going to get better here in a few minutes, and you're going to see that. But if you go back to Ephesians 1 and verse 10 from our study, it says, For an administration of the fullness of times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth in Him. The redemptive work is done by Christ. And then even in verse 11, we see that we become an inheritance to God the Father through the work of Jesus Christ, the work done on the cross in his resurrection. Okay, so, so far, this is what we've seen. The redemptive work of the Trinity is the Father's plan. It's carried out by the Son's work, and then both are equally glorified in that work, okay? And finally, but equally, we're going to look at the Holy Spirit as part of the redemptive plan. Let's go back to Ephesians. And let's go to Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. This is what we're going to see. It says, In him you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. There's that word again. And we know the Holy Spirit is sent to us by the Father. We know from reading... Uh, Jesus' words in John 14, 26, that he sends us the paraclete, right? The one who comes alongside. It's the Holy Spirit who seals us into the redemptive plan. There's a number of verses that show this sealing. 2 Corinthians 1, 22. 2 Corinthians 5, 5. Ephesians 4, 30. And here in our passage, we see this word sealed. Sfragizo. It's this word that basically means to guarantee or protect your faith. This is one of the reasons, the use of this word in Greek, that I don't believe you can lose your salvation. I'll argue it with you until we're both blue in the face. Here's how you can't lose your salvation. If you're truly saved and the Holy Spirit enters you, which the Bible says that it does, he says that you're sealed which means in order to get rid of your salvation, in order to lose it like it's your car keys, you'd have to be able to be more powerful than the God who has sealed your salvation. This is impossible. There's nobody on this planet more powerful than our God. There's no way you can lose your salvation. Now, if you're anything like me, I've had days where I've questioned it. Hard where I've wandered so far away, I can't hear him. But you're not kicking him out of you. This is, 
a very important lesson for us as believers to understand. And it's debated in the church. I think we can reasonably say if you become apostate and completely walked away from the Father, you were never saved because you were never sealed. The Holy Spirit plays many roles in the life of a believer. And just understand how many things he, not it, he does in the life of a believer. He convicts you. He prays for you when you don't know what to pray. And I'll tell you what, that is good news. Because if you're anything like me, you've had days where you are just so down and so out that you had no idea what to even pray. And you're like, my prayers seem so simple. They seem so selfish. It's okay. Because God knows what you need. And God, the Holy Spirit, will pray a petition to the Father for you. He comforts you. He guides you. He circumcises your heart. He teaches you and he reassures you. There's two more specific verses that may help us to understand how you're sealed, how you're safe, how you're guaranteed your salvation in him. And the first one has to do with sanctification. We've talked about this word a lot, right? It's the process by which we become more holy. We've brought this up a few times. So if somebody asks you or says to you, accuses you of saying, are you holier than thou? What should your answer be? Yes. Yes. I am set aside. Not because of what I've done, but because of what God has done for me. He has made me holy. Not by my work. I'm not saying I'm better than you. I'm saying I'm awful and unworthy. And God has made me holy. He's pulled me aside. He set me aside from before the foundation of time. <clears throat> This sanctification is the process by which that happens, that he makes you more like him. And then we take part in that process by craving and desiring to be more like him. So how does the Holy Spirit play a role in sanctification? From 1 Peter 1-2, it says this. This is written to those who are chosen in him. It says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, to the obedience of Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood, my grace and peace be multiplied to you. That sanctifying work, the work being set aside for God is done by the Holy Spirit in obedience to Jesus Christ. He, the Holy Spirit, is completely responsible for that work of sanctification in you. And the next verse, this one's awesome. The resurrection So we will be resurrected at some point. As believers, we are resurrected in him. In baptism, we have this picture of going down in the water and dying with Christ and then coming up and being resurrected in him. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 8.11. It says, But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your immortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The power to resurrect you back to the Father is done by the Spirit who dwells in you. That's amazing because you cannot be resurrected from the dead without the Holy Spirit. He has to dwell inside of you. Now look back to this passage, how it closes. In verse 14 it says, talking about the Holy Spirit who has given us a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. 
We take possession of our inheritance when we're resurrected to be with God the Father. And as we see here, it's to the praise of the Holy Spirit's glory. Well, here we go. Now, all three of them are going to get glorified as separate persons. So glory, doxha, is the manifestation of God's divine and glorious honor. I don't think a lot of people talk much about what does glory mean. It's a really interesting thing to look at because what is God's glory? It's the manifestation of his divine and glorious honor. Like, look how awesome our God is. As we see here, the Father is glorified through the redemptive plan that he built from before the foundation of time. The Son is glorified through his redemptive work, the sprinkling of his blood, his work on the cross. And then the Holy Spirit is glorified through his guarantee or his sealing of your salvation. The Trinity is essential to understanding the redemptive process. And without it, there can be no redemption. The good news in this is this right here. Nobody here has the power to save themselves. The knowledge to save themselves. Nor do you need to do any of the work. You shed no blood for that plan. You bear no weight for that plan. It is all done 100% by our God, who is amazing. But this is what I realize as I go through this redemptive plan. And I see how perfectly it is laid out throughout the ages. That the Father has established the plan. That the Son has carried out the plan on the cross. And that the Holy Spirit has saved me for eternity so that I might be redeemed that I might be resurrected and returned to be in the presence of his glory, the glory of the Father forever, is that he did save me. And why, though? Like, if he deserves all the glory, why little old me? As Sproul would say, this creature from the dirt. Why me? You know why? Not just to glorify his name, but because he is a gracious, gracious God. Because his love for us is so amazing that it glorifies his name. And for that, I don't know about you, but as time has grown by and I've become older and I've seen how unworthy I am, it makes me love him more for what he's done for me. And I do love him. And I love him because he first loved me. Father God, I am so thankful for you today that we were able to spend this time learning about your nature as a triune God and how it plays such an important role in our faith in the process of our redemption, the process of our salvation. How we learn that you are the one who established the plan for us long before we were anything. That we were always a thought to you that you always loved us and knew that you were going to return us to perfection, that you wanted well for us to glorify your name, that you wanted what's best for us to glorify your name, that you would establish a perfect 
perfect plan that shows us how much you love us, that we could not even conceive how much you love us, that you would give your son to shed his blood so that I wouldn't have to do anything. I don't have to prove anything. I don't have to suffer anything, but just believe. We're thankful for you today, Father, and ask that you bless the remainder of our time together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.